we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12. So book of Revelation is the last book in your Bible, not hard to find. Go to the end, page back a little bit, you're there. Find chapter 12, let it sit open on your lap for a little bit. We'll get there in a few minutes. Before we look at our text, I'd like to propose two principles for studying the book of Revelation to you all this morning. Uh, in fact, these are the first two parts of your outline. If you like filling in the bulletin outline, you'll be two-thirds of the way done in the next, like, three minutes. So principle number one, everything in the book of Revelation is symbolic. It is that filled with symbols. So usually when we read a book, maybe any book of any genre, we assume the opposite. So we assume things are gonna be literal and only if something sticks out like a sore thumb do we say, oh, maybe that's a figure of speech. Maybe that's symbolic. Maybe I don't take that literally. With the book of Revelation, we've gotta do the opposite. Now is this true 100% of the time? Not 100% of the time. So quick case in point, um, first few verses of the book of Revelation, we read that it was written, words given by God, but written down by a guy named John. Now is the name John symbolic? No, it's just the guy's name. There's nothing symbolic about John. But that's the exception by far in the book of Revelation. So 99% of what we run across is going to be symbolic. So our principle is, everything is symbolic. Principle number two, every chapter in the book of Revelation has an Old Testament background. You could just write capital O, capital T, if you like taking notes again. Every chapter in the book of Revelation has an Old Testament background. Let me show you how much so this is true. The book of Revelation has more references back to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. They aren't always obvious as we read through Revelation. So let me give you an example. They usually aren't quotes, these links back to the Old Testament. So usually in the book of Revelation, we don't have John writing something like, and Isaiah the prophet said, double quote mark, verse from Isaiah. We don't have that. Rather, we have what are often called allusions, links, um, catchphrases, wording, but clear enough that we would know, oh, if we know our Old Testaments, that's looking back to this verse and this prophet. So here's an example. We read about two olive trees in the book of Revelation. Two olive trees are talked about by the prophet Zechariah, and that's not coincidence. John wants us to think back to Zechariah's prophecy to help us understand what he's talking about when John talks about two olive trees. So he's going to expand or offer some commentary on what Zechariah said. That's the kind of link I'm talking about, two olive trees, not a quote. There are over 400 of these references in the book of Revelation. Now, I sat down a week ago and I came up with a total of how many verses there are in the book of Revelation. You can actually Google it, and people have done the math for you. There are only a little over 400 verses 
in the whole book of Revelation, so all the verses and all the chapters. So do you get the math here? That means there's an average of one Old Testament reference per verse. So if we're in a chapter of 20 verses, there are not just two or three or four links to the Old Testament. There are, on average, 20 or so if we've got 20 verses. Now, that's not a guarantee that every verse has a link to the Old Testament. Some verses may have zero. But that just means that a verse or two later, that verse has got to have two or three to make up for it. Because on average, every verse looks back to the Old Testament. That is how packed the book of Revelation is with links to the Old Testament. So that's got to be a principle for understanding the book of Revelation. Okay, let's return to these two principles later. Let's read our story for this morning, which is the first six verses of Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So I hope you see there's a lot of symbolism in these verses, as is true of the whole book of Revelation. Symbolism is pretty intimidating. I think because we, we perhaps think that we can't figure things out. So we don't read much from the book of Revelation. I don't think we memorize much from the book of Revelation. But is it really impossible to figure the symbolism out? Let me start with an example of how symbolism can look really confusing and daunting and we just throw our hands up uh, and give up. And I'm going to use an example outside of the Bible. In the year 1900, an author named Frank Baum wrote a book called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. We know it by its shorter title, The Wizard of Oz, as a film that came out in 1936. The film was a pretty big hit, although the movie really gained traction as an American classic 20 years later in 1956 when CBS decided to air it annually. Um, and for many families, this was a tradition, and this was true in my family. Uh, I'm a pretty old guy, so we're talking the 1960s here. But back in the 1960s, I was in preschool and elementary-aged public school, and every year on our black and white TV, this would come on. And my mom would say, hey, this weekend is the Wizard of Oz. How about I make popcorn? We all gather around and watch this. And my brother and I said, yeah. We had seen it 10 times before, but we want to see it again. It was that good of a story. 
Now, there seems to be a lot of symbolism in this storyline. After all, it's a yellow brick road. Man, what does yellow mean? It's the Emerald City, which is green. Does green mean something? Um, there's the Wicked Witch of the West. How about West? Is there some symbolism there? How about the Cowardly Lion? Does he stand for a certain class of people or, or a personality profile or temperament? Um, people love looking at these kinds of things when they talk about the Wizard of Oz. Let me tell you my two favorite ones and show you how maybe this is an example of where we kind of just throw our hands up and say, it's impossible to try to figure it out if there was any symbolism to begin with. These are my two favorite interpretations or little pieces of, of the whole story. According to one interpretation, Oz, the land, O-Z is an abbreviation for ounce. And in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, there was still some measure of a gold standard. And so this is a commentary, the whole movie is some kind of a commentary on the economic structures and conflicts going on at the turn of the century. So Oz equals ounce equals ounce of gold. However, a couple decades after that interpretation came out, somebody came across some memoirs of Frank Baum and he said this, one day I was sitting in my office trying to think of a name for my fictional land. Couldn't think of a name, just staring at the walls. My eyes fell across my file cabinets, which are organized alphabetically. The first one had a label A-G. Then there was one or two other file cabinet drawers. Then the last drawer was O-Z. I sounded it out, Oz. And I came up with the great name for my fictional country. So much for the gold standard theory. Here's one more, and then I'll let that die or lie or whatever. Uh, some people think that in Dorothy's name, there is great symbolism. And there are at least a half dozen interpretations of what Dorothy's name means. Here's my favorite. Dorothy's name has three syllables. Dor, O, Thi. Sound those same three syllables out, but put them in reverse order, and you get Theodore, the name Theodore, the first name of Theodore Roosevelt, the guy who would become president in 1901 and who was already rising in political power when Frank Baum wrote this story. So some people say Dorothy stands for everything that Theodore Roosevelt stood for, his party, his platform, except that in those same memoirs, Frank Baum said that he named Dorothy after a niece of his wife's that sadly died shortly after childbirth. So she brought so much joy into their family and the, their family of their relatives, but for a short period of time that the author thought he'll keep her memory alive by naming his principal character Dorothy. So nothing to do with Theodore Roosevelt. So is the book of Revelation like the Wizard of Oz? It's just a waste of time to go through all of this trivial pursuit, interpretations of what characters or names might mean. I'm going to, go, of course, say no to that. There's another book that I can draw your attention to, and we'll spend shorter time on this one. Over 400 years ago, John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. This for sure has symbolism packed into it. And it's not hard to figure out. The name of the main character is Christian. And guess what? 
he becomes a Christian. And the rest of the book is his trials, his victories, his friendships, sometimes made, sometimes broken, uh, as a mirror for what you and I go through in the Christian life. He has a friend called Hopeful. Guess what? He's hopeful. So most of the things in Pilgrim's Progress are not hard to figure out. Every once in a while, you've got to do a little bit of research. You come across a character called Apollyon, and you've got to Google that to see who this is. Um, But either it tells you what the symbol is, or the book gives you some clues so that it doesn't take you too long to figure out what the characters are, what they symbolize. So is the book of Revelation like the Wizard of Oz or like Pilgrim's Progress? I'm going to say it's in the middle of those two, but much closer to Pilgrim's Progress. With that in mind, let's look back at our story and let's look at some examples of symbolism and how we figure out what these mean with a measure of confidence. So something different than the meaning of the name of Dorothy. Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 12. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. So to start with, we know this is symbolism, that it's not literal. Why? Because John tells us that this is a sign. Well, what's a sign? A sign points to something else. And that's what symbolism is. One thing pointing to something else. But second, and there's a second reason we know this is symbolism, John tells us later in this chapter what the dragon stands for. So this will be like Pilgrim's Progress. Kind of obvious if you keep reading through the book. Look at verse 9. So scan your eyes down a little bit. Verse 9 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So again, with the dragon, this is like Pilgrim's Progress. This is not difficult, certainly not impossible for us to figure out the symbolism of the dragon. Let's look at another character. So verse 1 of chapter 12. And a great sign, here we've got that word again, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, once again, we know this isn't a literal woman. A couple reasons here. We've got the word sign again. That would imply some symbol. Second, this doesn't make sense in a real, literal world. Um, You can't take a woman and clothe her with the sun. If that were possible, she'd die right away, but you can't do it, right? She can't stand on top of the moon. She can't wear stars around her head. This is clearly symbolic. But unlike the dragon, we don't have a verse later in this chapter that tells us exactly and precisely who the woman is. So does that mean this is impossible to figure out? No. We're going to use our second principle, which is that every chapter in the book of Revelation, and sometimes you might say every verse, looks back to the Old Testament. So our clues here are the sun, the moon, and 12 stars. So if that doesn't ring a bell, and it probably doesn't, you could go home and you know, pull up the text of the Bible and some software of your choice and search. Give me a verse that talks about sun, 
moon, 12 stars. Those four words all together. What you'd pull up is Genesis 37, a dream that Joseph has that God gives him in which his father Jacob is the sun, his mother Rachel is the moon, and he and his brothers are the 12 stars. So in that symbolism in Genesis 37, the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars stands for Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. After all, Jacob's 12 sons go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel. This, his 12 sons are the sons of Israel or the tribes of Israel. We talk about all of Israel as Jacob's 12 sons, the sons of these two parents. So most commentators think, and I think they're right, that the woman symbolizes Israel or God's people in the Old Testament. So this is the the people group that Messiah comes from. So um, we've had the dragon, we've had the woman, we can see what they both symbolize. Let's review a little bit here. The book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism. And if you remember what I said, we're going to assume symbolism everywhere. It's that packed. Both the woman and the dragon are symbolic. And our second principle is we've got to look to the Old Testament to figure out parts of the book of Revelation, indeed the whole book. So now let's look more at the storyline of the woman and the dragon. Verse 2. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now, we don't have time for this this morning. This will take maybe 10 minutes. Um, but there's a part of biblical theology, not a big part, but a small part. And, and here's what that part consists of. When, when God is about to start a new era, then the time leading up to that new era is considered symbolically a time when either the whole earth or a people group experience pains as in labor pains, as if they were birth pains or pangs. So it's not that somebody's literally giving birth, but there's this expectancy of something wonderful that will happen, um, but there's this waiting, and the waiting is extremely difficult because of the longing for the new era to come. So that's why we read some emphatic language here about these birth pains that the woman has. Is the woman Mary? Well, not really. The woman is Israel, remember, of which Mary is a part. And the Messiah will certainly usher in a new era. There, in fact, there is no greater um, cross point, traverse point, start point in history than the cross of Christ and his coming into the world. So we read this verse about the woman being in labor. We expect that the next verse will talk about the baby, right? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? What's the name? Is it healthy? But that's not what we read in the next verse. So let's read on in the storyline. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So we know who this is, Satan. The baby is about to be born to the people of Israel. 
We're in a moment of red hot intensity. We don't know if things are gonna go good or bad, but man, things are getting intense. And the dragon is literally waiting for the baby to be born. Then we don't read a general verb like kill, like the dragon wants to kill the baby. Rather, we read this emphatic verb that he wants to devour it. The dragon literally wants to take the dragon's teeth and tear the baby apart, muscle by muscle, tendon by tendon, to completely destroy it. The dragon hates the baby that much. And so the dragon waits. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So remember our second principle. If we've got some doubts, if we're a little uncertain, we need some help, look to the Old Testament. So can we think of a place in the Old Testament where we read about a child, I'm going to give you a hint and say, think of a synonym, son. So a child or a son, number one. Number two, that son rules the nations. And number three, in his hand is a rod of iron. Maybe five or ten of you might have that figured out, but it's Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, where God has a son who will rule the nations and use a rod of iron. So... Our guess was that this baby was the Messiah, and it's confirmed here by this link to the Old Testament. Here's the odd thing about verse 5. It's the ending. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And here's where our third and final principle comes into play. The third principle is this. Things are not always sequential in the way we expect them to be. In fact, I'm going to exaggerate that a little bit and word it this way. Assume, and we're talking about the book of Revelation, assume that things are not sequential. Things are not sequential in the book of Revelation. Now, within stories and scenes they are, but I'm talking more about when other scenes come after them, like is chapter 12 after chronologically chapter 3 and 4 and 7 and 10. It may not be. Don't assume that it is. Things are not sequential. But let's just take the softer version. Things are not always sequential in the way that we expect them to be. Here's why the end of verse 5 seems odd. It seems like it's saying this baby is born, and then immediately to protect the baby from the dragon, God the Father takes the baby up to heaven. Well, the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say God the Father took a baby up. And we actually know that that did not happen, right? The very opposite happened. Instead of God the Father protecting the baby from Satan, God the Father allowed and even caused Jesus to, God the Son, walk the earth for 33 years, have a three-year or three-and-a-half-year teaching ministry, and even confront directly Satan on the cross. So again, the very opposite happened from the father trying to protect this baby. So what's happening here? I think what's happening here is we're expecting this to fit our conceived ideas of sequence as if this is a book of history. So here's what we expect out of the book of Revelation. We expect it to read like a history book of World War II. 
So how would that history book read? Well, if I were writing a history book on World War II, I would never go back in time. You just don't do that, right? Like if chapter eight, I'm writing about 1943, January, winter of 1943. And then my next chapter, chapter nine, I go back to 1941. I can't do that. That's going back. I can't skip around like that. There's a second thing I can't do if I'm writing a history book. I can't skip ahead. I can't jump over significant amounts of time. So if I'm writing a chapter on January 1943, my next chapter cannot be December 1943 because that was an action-packed year in World War II. Lots happened. I can't skip over 10 months. But the book of Revelation does this all the time. It'll skip ahead or it'll go back to give us a different scene. Why? Because Revelation is not history writing. It's a different genre called apocalyptic. So most commentators say, and I think they're right, that God taking the child up to heaven is Christ's ascension. So we've skipped from his birth all the way through his 33-year walk on this earth, including his death and resurrection, to God the Father taking him up to heaven. Now, if you've read your Bible for any length of time or you've been a Christian, you might think, man, why would John-God do that? Why skip over the cross? And the answer is pretty simple. That's not the focus of this chapter. The focus of this chapter is the woman and the dragon and the relation between those two. There are plenty of other spots in the book of Revelation where John and God, there's dual authorship here, right, focus on the shed blood of Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection, just not here. So now we're ready for our last verse. Verse six. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, understood nourished by God, for 1,260 days. So here we've got our last two symbols to work with. We've got the wilderness, what does that symbolize? And we've got this number, 1,260. Now, the number might be literal. There are people that hold to that view. There are probably people in this room that hold to that view, that that's a literal amount of time. Uh, but I'm just going to present a different view in which it's symbolic. My template for the book of Revelation is that everything is symbolic. Again, not 100%, but let's make that assumption. And a subset of that is, if everything's symbolic, all the numbers are symbolic. If you come across a number in the book of Revelation, chances are it is symbolic, not literal. So let's do a little math. Let's at first see how often this number comes up. 1,260, if you divide that by 360, is three and a half. Why divide by 360? Well, if you kind of round, I guess this would be rounding down a little bit, that is the number of days in a year. So think of a month as being 30 days. Don't get caught up in, okay, some months are 31, some months have 29, that kind of thing. Just think, month is 30 days, 12 of those is 360. Uh, that's your rounding down number for a year. With that number of days in a year, this is three and a half years. The Bible also calls this same amount of time a time, comma, times, comma, and half a time. In fact, later in this chapter, chapter 12, because we'll read a second story if you want to read that on your own, 
that really goes through the same scene that this story goes through, it's using that terminology, a time, times, and half a time, instead of the number of days. In fact, there are four different ways of saying this time period. We'll put them up on a slide, and you'll see them in your bulletin as well. You've got the number of days. You've got time, times, and half a time. You've got it listed in months, 42 months. And in the book of Daniel, we've got it worded as half a week, where a week is symbolic for a week, not of days, but a week of years. So what's a week of years? Seven years. What's half of that? Three and a half years. So not an uncommon number in the Bible, this 1,260 days. However, here's a number in the Bible that occurs 10 times more often symbolically than that number, and it's the number seven. The number seven used symbolically for completeness or wholeness is used dozens and dozens of times, probably over 100 times in the Bible. It all comes from Genesis 1. So remember, God created the world in how many days? Well, six days, but on the seventh day, don't think about God doing nothing. Don't think about him being inactive or maybe in our parlance, taking a nap. God did something on that seventh day. It just wasn't creating matter, things, or people. We could envision him as the three-in-one God having true worship and community within himself and possibly with his creation. Similarly, he calls upon Israel to honor the Sabbath. Does that mean they do nothing on the seventh day? No. True, they don't engage in manual labor, but rather they are to worship God and commune with one another. So, point being, creation as a cycle is seven days, not six. And that's the number for completeness or wholeness. Uh, this number used symbolically comes up, again, dozens of times in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 119, verse 164. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. So what does that mean, seven times a day I praise you? It doesn't mean count out seven times. So, wow, okay, if that's the command or the principle, then I got to get in seven kind of mini devotional times of Bible study or prayer. I'm going to try to get those all in before 11 a.m. so that I've nailed it, I've got them done, and then I can just do my own thing the rest of the day. That kind of be wicked thinking, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, like it's a laborious, boring thing to spend time with God. No. Seven times a day means more than once, more than twice, more than three times, all the time. When I wake up, those first few seconds, when I have breakfast, when I prepare to go to work, or maybe when you prepare to work out of your home, when you take a break in the middle of the day, when you talk to someone later in the day, when maybe you rest a little bit in the evening, when you are about to go to sleep, when you wake up in the middle of the night, praise God seven times a day is a way of saying Praise him all of the time. Here's another example. Isaiah says in chapter 30 that when Messiah comes, what we call the second coming of Christ, the light of the sun will be seven times brighter. Now, 
I don't think that that's literal. I don't think we measure the sun in lumens. I don't know how many zeros, millions of zeros that would be because a lumen is like the light of one candle. And then we multiply that times seven. I think it means there will be complete light when you're in the presence of Messiah when he comes. So think, think of our light in the middle of summer. There's no clouds in the sky. The sun is direct. We're here in New Mexico. We're at high elevation. As direct as that sun is, as bright as it is, there will be seven times that kind of brightness, which again doesn't mean multiply by seven, but think of light everywhere. Because even in our direct sun context, there are shadows. There is darkness at any given point of the day. Maybe in this setting, when you're in the presence of Messiah, there is no shadow even, no hint of darkness. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am, and then completes the sentence. Those link back to the book of Exodus where God the Father said, this is my name, I am. Clearly, Jesus claiming divinity in the Gospel of John. And here in the book of Revelation, the number seven is used a lot. One person said this, John has woven seven into every part of the book, which is true. He'll run across seven dozens of times in the book of Revelation. In fact, the book is structured around sevens, starting with seven letters to seven churches. Now, there were more than seven churches at the time that John wrote the book of Revelation, so why did he pick seven? I think the answer is obvious. To give us some idea of what a complete church would look like. Now, scholars are divided about what that means. Does that mean every church uh, in these seven letters is part of the history of the church? So maybe church number four, like letter number four written to church number four, maybe that's the church of the Middle Ages. And church number seven is us, or maybe it's still future to us. I don't hold to that view, but I do hold to a view that says that the letters are written to the whole church because seven means wholeness or completeness. I really like what Ryan, our preaching pastor, taught on that subject, meaning what does the completeness of these seven churches signify? But I won't take 10 minutes to explain that to you. I will refer you to his sermon. So if you write down June 3rd, 2007, in the summer of 2007, Ryan started a series on the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And in his first in that series, he talked about this idea of seven being letters to the complete church. All right, so we're done with seven. If seven means completeness, we've got to get back to three and a half. The proposal I've read that I think makes the most sense is that three and a half means limited, a limited time. If seven means a complete time, then half of that means a limited time. And that three and a half is not so much a length of time, but a kind of time. So let me try to give you an example. If God were to say, which he did, praise him seven times a day, that means praise him all the time. Let me make up a different kind of saying. What if God were to say to me, Ron, tomorrow you may have to look at sin three and a half times a day. Meaning you may have to view idolatry you may have to hear the name Jesus taken in vain. 
that, that you may have to go through that experience three and a half times a day. That would not mean I count those out. So when I hit three, I think, okay, there's going to be kind of a borderline one coming up that's going to be the half, and then I'm done. That would simply mean there's going to be a significant part of my Monday that's going to be viewing sin, more than one or two minutes, and I'll be burdened under it. I'll be longing for it to end, but it'll be limited. It will not be the whole day. It'll be a limited time. So let's go back to our verse. The woman fled into the wilderness, verse 6, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So there's something limiting about this time. Let's deal with the last symbol and try to tie it all together. What does wilderness mean? I think the best way of doing this, examining what wilderness means, is to again use our second principle, go to the Old Testament. Was there a time when Israel, that sun, moon, and 12 stars, went through a wilderness wandering? Well, of course they did. I'm guessing a couple hundred of you would say after the exodus from Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness. And I think that's what it's drawing our minds back to. You see, this time of the woman is actually, we'll read about this later in chapter 12, her offspring. So it's the descendants of the woman, spiritually speaking, that wander in the wilderness. And that's you and me. That's the church. I think that this three and a half years, this limited time, is another way of saying the last days, which in one view that I hold to, I mean, different people have different views even within our church, but the view I hold to would say that the last days are from the cross of Christ until his second coming, not a final seven years of history as we know it. And again, there are different Christians that have different views on that. But I think that last days fits here with three and a half years being a limited time for the church, a time in which, like perhaps my example of viewing evil for three and a half times a day, the church will have to go through tribulation, will be surrounded by hatred and idolatry and sinfulness and selfishness, and and that's still inside of us too in our own hearts that we call out to God for sanctification from, but not a forever time not a long time till our Messiah comes. So if the woman and her offspring, her descendants, her children, wander through a wilderness like Israel did, and if that's the church, then how could that be parallel to us, the church? Well, let me suggest two things in closing. One, they were pilgrims, <coughs> the Israelites, wandering through the wilderness, They looked forward, they longed for the Jordan River and the land of promise. But they weren't there. For decades they weren't there. And that's you and I. This isn't our home. The new heavens and the new earth, that is our home. We are pilgrims. We're not to put our trust in things of this world, even in relationships in this world. The exception being those relationships that are sanctioned by God our relationship with him and with each other as believers, and our proclamation of his gospel to non-believers, hoping that they will become part of his family as well. But we don't put our trust in this world. Hence, we sing pilgrim songs. I'm reminded that, I think it was two years ago, that Drew and his guild of songwriters 
wrote songs out of the Psalms of Ascent. Well, those are pilgrim songs. Songs sung on the way to, haven't arrived yet, the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, one author said, we the church are in the final exodus. There were several exoduses of the people of God in the Old Testament, but we are on the final exodus. There is no exodus and wandering in the wilderness and looking forward to a new land still future to us. We're it. We're the last part. Second, when we think back to that time of Israel wandering in the wilderness, God provided for them in miraculous ways and they were in the middle of trials, persecutions, temptations, a dry desert. So there are parallels there to where we are in our world, a world surrounded by hate, racism, selfishness, idolatry, pride, the very lack and absence of humility, unkindness. We are not unlike our forefathers in the wilderness of Sinai. And so what do we do? We do what they did. We sing songs about the new heavens and the new earth. And we are warned, we take heed, we take caution that sin is waiting to grab some part of our mind or our soul. And we sing songs of the new heaven and the new earth as pilgrims. And we warn each other, take heed lest sin take a grab into some part of your mind or your heart. And we sing songs as pilgrims on our way to our new home. Let me end with a quote from G.K. Beale. It's a quote that he wrote after reading Revelation chapter 12. Here's what Beale says. Christ has already defeated the devil and his host through his death and resurrection. In fact, the troubles of the persecuted saints occur now not because Satan is too powerful for them, but because he has been decisively overthrown. The devil does all the damage he can, but he cannot prevail over the church in any ultimate way. The readers, you and I, must know now that if they compromise, they are not compromising merely with the world, but with the devil himself. This realization should shock them out of any spiritual complacency. So one of our lessons from the book of Revelation from the woman and her children, which is you and I, is this. As the Israelites did in the wilderness of Sinai, we sing songs of deliverance, songs of hope, and we caution one another, we take heed that we not fall away, but rather we run toward our Lord and our King and our Savior and our Messiah, Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would indeed draw our minds back to those narratives about the Israelites in the wilderness. 
when we read about them complaining or grumbling or wishing for better things around them, may we look inside of our own hearts and see that in us. And may we pray to you for deliverance from that selfishness. Father, with them, may we look forward to, in this case, uh, not the land of Israel, but a new heavens and a new earth. And even then, not something like streets paved with gold, but the presence of the Lord Jesus, where we can shoulder to shoulder with those who call upon his name, worship and behold him forever and ever. We thank you for that hope. We thank you that you've given that hope, not just to us as individuals, but to us as a church. And pray that you would help us as a church, as a community of believers, on this pilgrimage toward that new heavens and that new earth. In Jesus' good and great name, amen.